Hello everyone, welcome back to another episode of Point of Insanity Game Studios Geekery in General Podcast. I am Al, and joining me today, my good friend, you know him, you love him, my wonderful co-host, Chad. How's it going, Chad? Woo! Yay! Woo! Chad's awesome! Hey, how's it going, man? <laughs> oh, not too bad. And, you know, I gotta ask you a question before I begin, Chad. Okay. We both like Dungeons & Dragons, you know? Yes. We've both been playing the fine game of D&D for many, many years. Yeah, yeah. More than I like to honestly admit to. <laughs> the reason Sometimes? We is it the reason mostly we... because mostly because it makes me old. <laughs> so, what happens though when you take the dungeons and the dragons out of Dungeons and Dragons? What do you have left? Not Dungeons and Dragons. You have an ampersand. That's about all you have left, right? Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> but you still have a rule set, even if it doesn't necessarily involve using the rules about dungeons and dungeon crawling and dragons. So I thought it'd be kind of fun to do this topic of taking dungeons and dragons beyond its traditional fantasy setting. And okay. there have been some attempts to do this in the past. So we were talking a little bit about this before we started recording what is the furthest back you can remember seeing um, an attempt to take D&D a little bit away from your traditional, uh, you know, your traditional swords and sorcery, Tolkien-esque fantasy? Oh, geez. Um, Spelljammer, second edition. Now, oh. I, you know, to be completely honest here, I know very little about Spelljammer other than... It's got spaceships, and it's got alien races, but I suppose they all technically have alien races, but it was it was more of a modern setting. I never actually played the setting. Um, it didn't appeal to me at the time that it was around. Uh, but yeah, that's the one I can think of as Spelljammer in 2nd Edition. Okay, and we're going to talk about Spelljammer uh, in just a moment, but there have been some attempts going even further back. Um, one of the first modules I remember scene that made an attempt to introduce some like sci-fi or modern elements into uh, Dungeons and Dragons was the classic first edition module. I think it was Expedition, it was White, was it White Plume Mountain or Expedition to White Plume Mountain? I think it's Expedition under White Plume Mountain. Uh, let me turn to the source of all knowledge uh, for a second, look that up. Cause Wikipedia! I, yay, yay, Wikipedia! Because I remember there was, because I know there wasn't a there was an adventure like Expedition to Barrier Peaks. Um, maybe that was it. I don't know. I, I remember there was a first edition module where the they introduced a spaceship. So um, you, what would happen is you would go into this spaceship, and you know, of course, there were you know all sorts of. Um, you know, of course, there were all sorts of uh, technical doohickeys you would find. Like, there were something that would be similar to, like, laser guns and um, power armor. And also, there was, like, medicine sprays and there were robots. And uh, it is Expedition to Barrier Peaks. So, yeah, that 
Um, that is one of the first things I remember seeing where they tried to take Dungeons and Dragons and introduce science fiction elements. Because if you ever seen the cover of the module, there's like a, a fighter shooting something that looks like a little laser pistol at a plant-like thing. Um, White Plume Mountain, okay, I think that one was actually a basic D&D module, but... Yeah, um, that was um, that was basic. I'm looking at it right now. Actually, it was Greyhawk. Okay. <laughs> and um, 1979, so yeah, that might have still... That was just AD&D, mm-hmm. according to the article here. Yep, uh, so, AD&D um, first edition. And so that was one of the first attempts I remember, and I believe they made some attempts in uh, Temple of the Frog... Because I, I do have the PDF of that module, uh, just because it was like on sale at Wizards of the Coast um, on Drive Through RPG, and there was, uh, you know, so I, I picked it up because I heard it was supposed to be an interesting module, and um, the yeah, that one there is actually uh, someone on the cover who is. No, maybe that's just a wizard casting magic missile, but I, I thought they introduced some a little bit of light science fiction elements in uh, that one as well. Um, well, you know, there was that niche of nerd out there that they weren't capturing with the D&D thing, so they had to look at sci-fi, I think. Yeah, and... Another- really came, I mean, it really kind of came to life in 3rd edition. I'm sure we'll get to that eventually, but, yep. you know, it was, it was that niche of... Sci-fi nerd, that Star Wars nerd, that um, you know, that kind of thing. That uh, I can't. And right now, sci-fi shows are coming off my head like nothing. I can't find one of them other than Star Wars. But you know, Star Trek, Star Wars, all these movies and TV shows that had a huge following, but they didn't care about D and D in most cases. Yeah, and and TSR back in the day, they did make an attempt to branch into science fiction with Star Frontiers, which, have you ever played that? I have not. I have heard of it, but I have never played it. Because I guess it was like the regular D&D where they had a basic version and a little bit more advanced version, and I still have the basic version. The basic version, there really wasn't much to it. You didn't have a class. There really wasn't anything in the way of skills. You essentially chose your race. There was human, there were these blob-like things, there were these monkey-like things, and there was this mantis-like thing, race, where you were essentially fighting against worm-like things, which I think were like the Sathar or something like that. But Okay. Um, and like I said, it there wasn't much in that version that I have, um, but I think they did eventually release an up, updated version where they tried to make more into, they tried to introduce more skills into it. So that's a, that was the first attempt I can remember that they did to branch off into science fiction. They also had Boot Hill, which was more Western. Um, but getting back to Dungeons and Dragons, they would eventually make a few other attempts with, uh, if you're familiar with Mask of the Red Death, Yep. So that was a, essentially it was like a a branch off from Ravenloft where it took place in Victorian times. And I remember playing uh, a version of that at uh, at Gen Con one year back when I was doing RPGA tournaments. I remember that okay. was one of the, the scenarios that I game mastered it, but I never actually played in that particular uh, 
tourn- tournament just game mastered it. So it was a Victorian vampire thing? Yeah, Victorian, and I don't remember if there was much in the way of vampires. Um, like I said, I've I'm only got a little bit of familiarity with it. I just know that it was mm-hmm. primarily Victorian times. Well, you said it was a, it was an offshoot of Ravenloft, which kind of leads it to the at least vampires. in my mind to be vampire based. Yeah, because if I'm if I'm not mistaken, they did incorporate the horror checks, which is why I I call it kind of an offshoot of Ravenloft because I remember they had those horror checks in Ravenloft, and I'm pretty sure they did the same thing in Mask of the Red Death. And then I remember Dragon Magazine, they did have uh, one ep- issue where the they had an article that it very briefly talked about doing uh, D&D Beyond Fantasy, and it, it was very, very minimal. I mean, it was more or less just, okay, here's what armor class a bulletproof vest would get you, and here's much, how much damage a shotgun would do. Here's how much damage uh, a revolver will do. But let's get back to Spelljammer. And I tried playing Spelljammer once. I had a friend who had the box set, so I paged through the the book. And this is where we're going to have one of our first disagreements. I don't consider Spelljammer to be a true non-fantasy way of playing D&D, where you think it is. Or wait, no, I have that opposite. Um, I consider it still fantasy. You consider it moving beyond fantasy. Yeah, absolutely. Spaceships, man. What else do I have to say? Well, as I recall, a lot of the spaceships, and this is where I think we're having our disagreement. Well, I know they had the big one, the spell jammer, that was this flying mantis with a city on its back. And then they had the smaller ones. But this, as I recall, the spaceships and spell jammer, were magically powered. And um, also, the other reason I still consider Spelljammer to be within the world of fantasy is because it told you about, okay, taking your characters to the Forgotten Realms or Kryn or Greyhawk. So it was more more or less essentially a way to take your characters from, let's say, Greyhawk to Faroon and to do it without having to, like, plane shift and do all that stuff. So, because these play, because it's still set in a fantastical setting, even though there's spaceships and, if I remember, wasn't there some form of weapon that was like a laser beam? Not that I remember. Okay, I could be thinking of something else, but... There's spaceships taking you, instead of going through the whole, you know, plane shifting or plane traveling, you're using these magically induced spaceships to get you there. So because it's magically induced and because you are going to these fantastical worlds, therefore it's a fantasy setting is what you're saying? Yeah, because the the mechanism that was used to power the spaceships, and again, I could be wrong on this, because it's been a while since I've seen the the Spelljammer book and looked through it, but it was magic-powered as opposed to science-powered. And uh, as I recall, a lot of the worlds that they, they talked about, it was still limited to fantasy worlds. 
So it's not like you were going to take a Kender from Dragonlance and put him in a world of, you know, laser blasters and, and hand grenades and, oh, God, that is a frightening thought. A What's Kender that? with a laser gun and hand grenades. <laughs> I, I I will allow it. Just not when I'm running. <laughs> so yes, um but yeah, that is that's that's why but I don't consider uh spelljammer moving beyond fantasy. So Okay, but then with your logic, okay, let me see if I understand this. If I were to take let's say um Let's say the cast of Star Wars, and I place their battle, or not Star Wars, Star Wars isn't a good one because it's out in outer space, but let's say I take the Roman Legion, and I transport it to Waterdeep, and the Romans take over Waterdeep, is it still a fantasy game then? Well, I would still consider it fantasy because even though you've got this Roman, these Roman Legionnaires from Earth taken into water deep they're still in that world of fantasy settings and you know again if you're looking at uh you know rome during the height of the roman empire technology wise it still falls more or less in the lines of what you would con- what you would encounter in you know dragonlance or forgotten realms you know people wearing various types of armor uh, swords, shields, spears, you know, stuff like that. Because we we haven't reached the point yet where, you know, where guns were practical for combat. Well, no, but let's say we add archivists into it. You know, that first initial handheld tube that you put black powder in a, in a, in a bullet into and you lit it up and you shot people. Romans is, didn't is have archivists, the- though. No, I'm not saying they did, but <laughs> if is is that what is that the is that the turning point for you the to have the power of black powder? Well, I think in a way, well, I guess here's what I mean when we're talking about taking it beyond fantasy is when we start to incorporate more elements of other uh, genres and we start to move away from uh, you know away from the swords and sorcery feel that you find in like Forgotten Realms or, you know, or Dragonlance or all these other settings that we've seen for Dungeons and Dragons. Like, let's, here's what I mean. Let's say you take uh, the, the Heroes of the Lance, you know, from Dragonlance, very well known, very beloved uh, group in fantasy literature. And let's pop them right in the middle of New York City in 2017. So okay. I guess that's kind of what I mean. And also, or maybe that's not necessarily the, the best way to convey what I'm trying to describe, but, you know, okay, let's say take the modern world 2017, but maybe that yep. guy down the street can cast magic spells. So Harry Dresden. Yeah. Like that, or Harry Potter might be another example. Um, okay. But though in Harry I, Potter. I can deal with Harry. What was that? I said I can deal with Harry Squared. <laughs> Though with Harry Potter, I mean, that really kind of uh, brings up its own set of rules because, you know, in the movies and such, they always made this attempt to keep the magical world separate from the non-magical world. 
So I'm thinking right. about something where the two become more intergrained. Now, I've heard of the Dresden Files, but I'm not familiar with it. So can are, have you read Dresden Files, or is that something you're familiar with? I, I've read one or two of the books, um, and I watched uh, about half a season of the TV show that they put out. Um, I wasn't impressed by the TV show, so that's why I didn't finish watching the season. But um, Harry Dresden is a magician for hire in Chicago, Illinois. Okay, um, so in this setting, is magic considered... I mean, does the average person on the things on the street still think that magic is a magician pulling a rabbit out of the hat, or does the average person on the street realize that hey, there are people out there that can summon demons and fly through the air and shoot lightning bolts from their fingers? Well, it depends. Um, the average Joe, no, they think a magician is a guy that pulls a rabbit out of the hat, you know, sleight of hand, that kind of thing. Um. Harry works lives in a world of Chicago in modern times. They never really give a year or anything like that, but it definitely feels like the 1980s when you read the books, to me. It, it's set in the 1980s. I've heard people argue that it was set in the 1940s, but, you know, the, the, the guy, uh, Jim Butcher, doesn't really give a year, at least not in the books that I've read. So, basically, you know, he lives in this world and the wizards and there's an entire council of wizards um, headed up by Merlin, uh, which is a title in this case, not a, not the Merlin because wizards do grow old and die. And it's a constant battle between the wizards who are trying to save humanity and the vampires who are basically trying to snack on uh, humanity. And then of course they throw in demons and spirits and all these other things. I mean, it's very, very much, um, misplaced, uh, characters and creatures in a modern world. Okay. So yeah, that's kind of what I'm thinking of when we're talking about taking D and D beyond fantasy. So it'd be like, let's say you, you know, you're going to take the Dungeons and Dragons rule set, but you're not going to take it to play in a world of dragons and giants and orcs and kobolds and now uh, before yeah, we go well, well, the gaming world has kind of done that for us hasn't it with things like i mean we talked about this a little bit beforehand but d20 modern yep uh d20 future yeah and that's what i was gonna i thank you for bringing that up because i was trying to bring us back on the track there because so there really wasn't much you know there was some attempts during the years of second edition to bring, you know, to bring D and D beyond fantasy, but we saw more attempts at that in third edition because wizards of the coast did get the rights to do a star Wars RPG, which was based on the D 20 system. And mm -hmm. there was also D 20 uh, modern, which I've never played it. I used to have the book for it. So have you ever uh, seen the D 20 modern book? I did. I played D20 once, D20 Modern once as a player. Um, I was never interested in running it because I have other games that I play in a modern setting that I think work better. Okay. Um, but I, I don't know. I wasn't overly impressed with it. I okay. thought um, statistics like for weapons and such seemed awfully small. Um, they unfortunately, because it's a die twenty system, the the ability to kill somebody is hard. 
you know, in D&D, it's hard to die. And when they did D20 Modern, it was still hard to die. But I'm sorry, Al, if I walk up and I shoot you with a gun, in the real world, which is the setting they were trying to do D20 Modern in, you're going to die. Or you're going to, you know, it's going to be life and death. You may survive it, but it's going to be life and death. If I, It doesn't matter where I shoot you. Yeah, I mean, come on, let's face it. Chuck Norris is a badass, but you walk up behind him and with a you know a twelve gauge shotgun with a solid slug in it, point it in the back of his head and pull his trigger. All those years yeah. of karate and martial arts aren't going to protect him or do much for him. So, right. I, I, unlike the memes, he cannot catch bullets and do all kinds of weird stuff. Yes, and because I did like what D twenty was doing, I thought it was interesting the way they did character classes. Where instead of having like, okay, this is a fighter, this is a ranger, it's you had six different character classes, each was based on one of your on one of the statistics. So you had the strong hero, the fast hero, the tough hero, the smart hero, the intelligent hero, and I think they just called the last one for charisma the charismatic hero. Okay, uh, and. I know they also did make a similar one, uh, D20 Future, which from what I understand, they tried to incorporate some of those, uh, some of the elements from Star Frontiers in there. So that was okay. pretty cool. And I also did, I used to have uh, one of the books, D20 Apocalypse, which, and it was actually a very well-written book. So even if you don't play the D20 Modern System, if you see a copy mm-hmm. of D20 Apocalypse in a used bookstore, Pick it up. It's actually kind of a fun book to read. It talks. Is it, is it part of D twenty Modern? Yes. Okay. Okay. Go on. I'm sorry. Yeah. And it's it's not a hardcover. It's just like more of a paperback. It's maybe about the size of if you remember the complete handbooks from Second Edition. Mm-hmm. It's about that size, but they okay. actually cram a lot of good ideas in there. Uh, they talk about some of the major types of apocalypses that. You know, we see in 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 um, you know movies and film, TV shows. You know, like for example, you have something like the Terminator, where you've got machines that are trying to destroy humanity. Um, Post nuclear war, uh, post alien invasion, and they even had one based off of like a, a Revelations type scenario, like with the Rapture. Okay, so. All in all, I thought it was a very well-written book, and it was it was fun to read, even though I never had a chance to actually play the system. Right, right. And, of course, with D20 since, or the third edition years, since, uh, you know, this was the time where the OGL was strong, there were just tons of third-party material out there. So I'm sure there's probably some third-party uh, book out there that talks about using... Uh, D20 in a non-fantasy type setting. Fourth edition, I don't think they really made any attempts at fourth edition to go beyond fantasy because, uh, I don't know, I think a lot of people... Because it didn't last long enough? <laughs> yeah. And, and I think, I'm not saying this to diss fourth edition, so anyone out there, if you enjoy playing fourth edition, I'm not trying to diss that edition of the game. Not trying to be an edition warrior here. But 4th edition, in a way, was kind of its own little thing. Um, 
but we're not going to get into that whole is is fourth edition is it D and D? You know, we're not going to get into that. It's because it's on it's on the cover of the books. Yes. For this argument, let's say it is because it's on the cover of the books. Yes. Fifth edition. A friend. Now I do have friends that do have the DMG for that edition, and I think in the back of that they do have rules for like laser guns and and modern weaponry. So while I they haven't. Through, but you know, it just so happens my fifth edition um, DMG is sitting right here. Let me flip through it quick. Keep talking. Okay, because so as far as I know, they haven't released anything. I, I know Wizards hasn't released anything, and I don't think there's any like OGL third-party products that make use of, uh, you know, the the modern and futuristic weapons that are. Uh, in the back of the fifth edition DMG, but I thought that was, I thought that was cool that they did that. So in case you have someone that decides, okay, I do want to take the fifth edition rule set, but I want to run a cyberpunk campaign, or I want to do something like Star Wars or Star Trek, or I, maybe I just want to do a modern day setting. Well, at least now you've got the weapons and armor figured out. Okay, so. Uh, um, yes, they have, um, they have explosives, bombs, gunpowder, dynamite, grenades, um, alien technology and how to figure out alien technology, uh, firearms, anything from pistols and muskets to automatic pistols, revolvers, um, laser pistols, laser rifles, antimatter rifles. <laughs> well, they're certainly covering all the bases. Yeah, so I mean, they do have a small section on it. It's just part of a variant. Uh, it's that's uh, called the Dungeon Master Workshop is in here. Okay, so and that's where you're going to find all that kind of yep. stuff. All your bases are belong to us. They're covering everything. Yes, exactly. A Kender with an antimatter rifle. Yes. Oh man, that could be so much fun. It actually does necrotic damage. Okay. Um, let me jump back in there quick. Um, Wait, you I know how you could keep a Kender busy? Just teach him how to use the internet and give him a laptop. I guarantee a Kender would keep himself amused for years with that. <laughs> well, we, we've done it. That's true. <laughs> Somebody gave us a computer and went, here's the internet, and we haven't turned it off yet. Yep. <laughs> so, so the anti-meta rifle does 6 die 8 necrotic. Um, you have a range of 120 slash 360. You only get two shots, though, and then you have to reload it. It's two-handed, and it weighs 10 pounds. But 6 to 8 necrotic, holy moly, man. Wow, because isn't it with, like, necrotic damage? It be, that hit, Those hit points cannot be uh, regained until you've had a certain amount of rest? Um, I don't know with fifth, I know in third edition, necrotic was it, you actually had to be healed by, uh, I want to say it was lesser restoration was the lowest thing that would get rid of necrotic damage. Yeah. Cause I think then in fifth edition, cause, uh, I remember encountering that when, um, one of my, some of my friends and I were playing uh curse of Strahd where okay. they use that as a substitute for the level drain that we had in the earlier editions. Right. So I actually kind of liked the idea because 
few things suck more than getting hit by a vampire a couple times and losing some levels and then having to go find someone who can cast restoration on you. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, restoration sucks, and it's expensive, and all that other stuff that goes with it, you know, it's just... Um, I was trying to look through the uh, through the back of this quick to figure out how necrotic worked, yeah, but well, it doesn't. We can talk about I, that. I, okay. Yeah, we can do that another time. Okay, so let's move back to D and D, and again, go back to the past. And uh, since we've got third edition and later covered, you know, let's talk a little bit about some the earlier editions. So, because with first and second edition. You know, well, there are some differences between those editions. They do share a lot of common uh, themes and a common elements. So, yeah, the most often time you're going to see two editions merge together. It's first and second. Yeah, and that's just one of the things that I love so much about those editions is, you know, they're they're close enough where you can use first edition material in a second edition campaign, and you know, and vice versa. So, right. Let's talk about some of the classic. D&D classes, how would we incorporate them into something beyond the fantasy realm? So let's start with the easy one first. The Humble Fighter. Yeah, the Humble Fighter. So not saying that's bad, of course, but um, yeah, and I mean, I think that one's going to be pretty easy to convert no matter what type of setting you're going into because... Well, a fighter is someone who fights. They're good at studying, you know, weapons and armor and equipment and, you know, warfare. So the only real limitation you're going to see to a fighter in a fantasy, or I'm sorry, not fantasy, in a science fiction setting or steampunk or Lovecraftian horror, if you dare, it's just what type of weapons and armor they're going to use. Right. What they're skilled at. Yeah. And they did talk a little bit about historical gaming back in second edition uh, when they had the, the historical handbooks. And I know they did go a little bit into early firearms in the A Mighty Fortress book. Okay. Which that one focused mostly on the Renaissance. Okay, yeah. So it would have been the, it would have been the birth of firearms mostly. Yeah, and then they, it also talked, I think it even went up to the, maybe it was even a little later than a Renaissance, more into like the Age of Exploration. Because uh, I know okay. that's one of the things they talked about in that is like they talked a little bit about like the new world versus uh, the old world. So, so uh, yeah, I mean, fighters said pretty simple. No matter what uh, type of setting you're going to put them in, yeah, I would agree. But the only other one that I think would be pretty clear cut would probably be the thief. And what? what? Are you- <laughs> Why don't you kick this one off? Yeah. Because I know that you 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 like playing thief characters. I do. I do like playing thief characters, and yeah, same thing. Technology is going to change, but the basic drive of a character that is a thief is not going to. They want money. They want power. They want prestige based on getting it, and not necessarily getting it in a way that is within the rules of the law. Exactly. Um, you know, whether whether they're trying to get through, quote-unquote, magical defenses or laser grids, it's really the same thing. Yeah, and with a thief, you could even uh, incorporate some new thieving abilities if you want. Now, if we're going by first and second edition, 
and basic rule set, you know, your thieving abilities are all percentage. So right. in a, I mean, I could see maybe read language. You could probably ax that one, um, mainly because, well, people. Well, depending on when you said it, you could ax that if you were in the modern world, because you know what? If you gave me something written in Mandarin, I just go on to Google and I translate it. Yeah. So I think if you're doing a thief in a modern setting, you could ax the read language or even in like a futuristic setting and maybe replace that with like computer hacking. Where Right. And I could see using the same general um, range for where it starts because as I recall with read language, it starts out pretty low. Uh, and then, I, I, you know, and I guess it's because they figure that most thieves aren't really going to to devote a lot of a lot of uh, points into that particular skill. Just like in a modern setting with a modern thief or a sci-fi setting, you know, yes, it, it you might learn a little bit about computer hacking, but it's not necessarily something that your average you know street thug is going to be specializing in. Right. No, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's one of those things where, you know, as a, as a modern day thief, am I going to be sitting there trying to figure out what's on a scroll? No, I'm going to be on the internet trying to figure out how to steal money from your bank account and put it in mine. Exactly. And, uh, and another... make it so you can't trace where that it went into mine, you know, kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And I think most of the other skills would certainly be uh, useful as well. I mean, you know, picking locks, uh, climbing. Of course, move silently and hide in shadows. You know, that's always going to be useful for a rogue, no matter what time setting they're in. Yep, I would agree. So, and I, I, I think another one that would be easy, and I think you play these more than I do, but though is the cleric. Okay. So instead of being a cleric of a quote unquote God, you're the pre, you're a Catholic priest, or you're a Lutheran minister, or something like that. I mean, and as far as the belief of what a priest can do in this day and age with, you know, helping to heal the sick and all this kind of stuff, I think it would transfer pretty easily. I, I, do you disagree? No, I, I think if we assume that we're going to allow magic to be, you know, common, I could see clerics being fairly easy to translate, as, mostly if you're going to be like a generic cleric. Because I know one of those topics that can be controversial is how to incorporate real-world religions into a role-playing game. Some mm -hmm. people, no problem. Other people are kind of uncomfortable with it for whatever reason. So I, I guess it depends on... What because religion makes people uncomfortable? <laughs> yeah. Well, it really depends on, I guess, what type of a... what your gaming group, what their comfort level is. But, I mean, if you get right down to it, okay... You know, okay, how would a Catholic priest be different from a Lutheran minister? How would they be different from, and we're talking about from a game mechanics point of view, how would right. they be different from a Jewish rabbi or an Islamic uh, cleric or, you know, a Wiccan priest or uh, a Buddhist to, monk? And that's the thing is it would take a lot more work in today's age because you would have to look at it and go, Okay, you know, what what powers are imbued by their God, i.e., whether it's Christ for a Christian or whether it's, you know, Buddha or 
or Allah or whoever your God is, what is imbued to the holy men of of that religion? Yep. And I think that's where you would have to do a lot of homework on whatever said religion. And that would be homework that both the GM would have to do and the person playing the character. Yeah, and again, like I said, if you want to just run a generic cleric, you know, it probably wouldn't be too much, um, you know, be too difficult. But uh, the other thing you have to keep in mind is, well, what about armor and weapons? You know, it makes sense that, you know, a soldier, you know, if like a fighter, if we're using the example of a fighter as maybe someone like a soldier or uh, a former law right. enforcement, they would be more knowledgeable with how to, to use and put on body armor than just the average person in the street would. Right. And you'd be more likely to be okay with a police officer that happens to have a flak jacket on, you know, Oh, he's still on duty. He just got off of duty, you know, whatever. Versus you walk in the church and there's your priest with a flak jacket on going, bring it on and carrying a big mace or something. But you know, yeah. And that's something that you also got to consider with weapons because with, uh, the popular theory, I think, as to why uh, the clerics in earlier editions were limited to blunt weapons, um, mm-hmm. I think part of it was just a game mechanic perspective because, uh, you know, it did, I mean, while maybe a cleric couldn't use as many weapons as a fighter, he could still use the same armor, but he had spells and the ability to turn undead, that would kind of make up for the fact that he couldn't use as many weapons. But well, I think if you look at it, I think if you look at it historically, in a lot of religions, clerics or you know things of that nature, they were not out there to hurt people. So a cleric walking through the wilderness from one city to another city, on whatever mission or or you know thing he's on, might have a walking stick with him. He's not going to be carrying a, a, a you know a shotgun in his pocket, you know. And I think that has to do with it, and the armor, obviously, because he's traveling through the wilderness. What a lot of people don't understand is that the world hasn't always been like it is today, where as you drive down the highway, every six miles there's a city. There used to be a time when, okay, let's say there was another city six miles away. You had clearing around your city for maybe a quarter mile outside of town, and then you plunged into a deep forest in a lot of cases. And you were in that forest until you were a quarter mile from the city you're going to. Mm -hmm. So there was a lot more inherent danger in traveling from city A to city B. Yeah, and the other rationale for, I I think they used in earlier editions, why clerics were limited to to blunt weapons is because they're supposed to avoid shedding blood. Now, again, I could see, depending on how you're going to construct that, that cleric in the modern setting, you know, you might, I mean, like, well, you look at legends and lore, something like a cleric of, of Ares. Well, shedding blood is not something that they're going to be adverse against. But if you take like a Buddhist monk, you know, they're, you know, they don't want to shed blood. So it would make sense that they would limit themselves to like clubs or stabs for self-defense because it, could allow them to defend themselves without, with less risk of causing, you know, serious injury. Um, mm-hmm. So, 
then, you know, maybe this is a topic we can explore in greater detail another day. But uh, let's move on to the other type of priestly class, the Druid. And I think this could be really challenging because now uh, the Druids in the player's handbook are nothing like the historical Druids from ancient Europe. And, you know, they talk a little bit about that in the the Celtic handbook for second edition. So, Mm -hmm. I mean, I guess I could see him being a challenge to play in a a non-fantasy setting because, while there are people who are definitely for the preservation of nature, I think the whole have to be true neutral, I think that could be really tricky to play in a modern type setting. What do you think? Okay. Yeah, I I think it would be very much... I think it's very hard to play in a fantasy setting. You have to look at what is true neutrality. And and this is probably going off topic just a little bit, but follow me here. So what's truly neutral? That means everything in balance, correct? Correct. So, uh, and the way that the second edition player's handbook usually describes neutrality, at least in regards to druids, like let's say there's a war between a local baron and a tribe of, I think they use gnolls as an example, um, okay. you know, some sort of violent, evil humanoid race. So the druid, if he feels that the gnolls are becoming too powerful, he would probably join the baron and any heroes that he sent. However, once if the gnolls were getting to the point where they were near extinction, and just totally getting massacred, he might switch sides or maybe just drop out of the conflict. Um, right. And so, that's, yeah, that's exactly what I was getting at. So does that mean in an individual skirmish, let's say, let's say you are a cleric, I'm a fighter, and we've got our friendly uh, true neutral druid with us. And we're fighting a group of, let's say, five whatever. Five evil guys, five bad guys, whatever you want to call them. And so right now we're outnumbered. So in order to gain neutrality, he's going to fight with us until they're equal. At which point he should drop out. See, I don't necessarily see it that way. Because, I mean, uh, if if we had, you know, our neutral friend with us, and if we were jumped by, you know, five guys... I don't think he would drop out of the conflict when it's just like, okay, two bad guys left, and then, okay, Chad and Al, you guys can take the rest of them. I guess, because, okay, a true neutral character would, arguably, they would believe in self-defense. Um, it's just, I guess, the reason it would be kind of tricky in a modern setting is, how many people in the modern world do you know are truly thinking about things like the balance between law and chaos and good and evil? Uh, is zero the correct answer? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't think the average person... Ooh, what do I win? What do what? I win, Al? What do I win? You I was win. Right. You win the love and adoration and respect of all our fans. Woohoo! I'll take it. <laughs> okay. So, yeah, I mean, really, if we want to... If, if I was to incorporate a druid in, like, a non-fantasy type setting, I would probably see him as kind of like that 
you know, that hermit or that mountain man that is really in tune with the natural world and prefers to live as far away from city as possible. So, you know, the kind right. of person that could sure. easily live off the land and, you know, sees it as a something that he can draw spiritual power from as opposed to someone who draws power from like a, you know, a god or a goddess. Right. And I would totally agree with that. Um, in a modern setting, I probably would not allow Druid as a player character. Just to be completely honest, I, I think that would be going, that would make it too difficult for everybody else that's involved with the Druid. As as a player, I, I honestly don't care if it's hard for me to play a character. In fact, I kind of find that challenge to be fun as a, as a player. However, if it's going to mess up everybody else in the group, then you have to step back and go, okay, is it is it worth it? And just as a quick story here, so I'm in a fifth edition, uh, a fifth ed uh, campaign that I'm playing in right now. I made a warlock because warlocks are freaking amazing. Okay? And as the group fleshed out over the first, you know, three, four, five uh, uh, game sessions we had, I was just like, you know, he's really not fitting in the group. His drive does not match that of the group. So I talked to the DM and I said, you know what? I said, this isn't, this isn't meshing. I said, it's fine for me. I don't mind playing this, but I can tell looking at other players that they're getting frustrated with the way my, you know, with my character and how he's being played. And I said, I could change the way he played, uh, the way I play him, but that really doesn't fit the character concept I have. What should we do? And he goes, well, we can do a couple things. And, you know, we went through these things, but basically we talked it through and came to the fact that I, I should make a new character. So what we did is I played through the rest uh, or the next session as this character. He put in this big point in the game where, you know, everybody had to make this choice whether to do this thing or not. And the warlock just walked away. He said, not my bad guys. I'm out of here. And he left. And then the next session, I just brought in a new character. But, you know, and I think that would be the problem with the druid. And I think that's why in a modern campaign, I wouldn't allow a druid as a player character. See, and when I was, while you were talking, I was thinking uh, one interesting idea for a druid as an NPC, I could mm -hmm. see him used being like an eco-terrorist. Because, you know, there are people who will, they'll, they'll sabotage like, you know, lumber, you know, the, like if there's an area where a lumber company is cutting down a bunch of trees, there are yep. people that will go in and sabotage their equipment. Or so, chain themselves to the, yeah, to the trees or whatever. Yeah. So no, that, I think that's good use. My, my thought was, well, what if you make them like a wise man on top of the mountain kind of thing, you know? Yeah. He's old wise man. He's up in, he's out in the wilderness. It wouldn't have to be on top of a mountain, but he's out in the wilderness and he's, you know, and you have to go to him for this knowledge or that knowledge or or this equipment or that equipment that you can only get from him. And so there you can use them that way. Yeah. And again, going back to the eco-terrorist point, um, I think it would be an interesting NPC for an adventure because maybe you're being hired by, you know, whatever organization to go track down this druid that is using his magic to interfere with you know, a lumber uh, operation or, you know, a mining operation. And maybe you find out that the Druid is actually the good guy in this situation because this company is actually polluting 
uh, the drinking water supply or they're killing off endangered species. Um, or since if we are going to incorporate fantasy elements in, you know, maybe you could have that the, you know, the lumber company, the reason they're destroying this area is there some darker or mystical purpose. And while the most people are going to think the Druid is committing, you know, terrorist or criminal acts, he's actually doing it for a good reason. You know, maybe there's a secret cave where there's some great evil monster that's imprisoned. And right. this company is trying to, you know, maybe there's a, a demon or a lich that's uh, disguised himself as the leader of this, this corporation. And he's trying to uh, unearth this cave. Hence why he's sending in the, the lumber operations and the mining operations, because he wants to free this monster to unleash its, its destructive capabilities. So the Druid is actually trying to prevent this because uh, while interfering with the, you know, these operations might be seen as evil or criminal by some people, he's actually doing it to save lives. Right. So, All right, let's 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 uh, let's jump on to something else. We spent a lot of time on the druid here. Well, along the similar line as the druid, let's talk about the ranger. And okay, how would you use a ranger in something like a sci-fi or a modern type setting? I, I think rangers are actually kind of easy because let's be realistic—they still exist. You have the army rangers, you have the uh, Texas rangers. Ranger is just simply somebody who. Um, what's that? Yeah, Some rangers. rangers. It's it's a scout basically. It's well, somebody who goes ahead of everybody else and, and checks an area out. Yeah, and I could see, uh, see, I could see a ranger uh, being similar to, uh, you know, a naturalist, someone like Jane Goodall or you know Steve Irwin, the crocodile hunter. These people who. You know, they go out, they study the animals for scientific reasons, but they also try to educate people as to, um, you know, how, you know, how these animals are important in the ecosystem. Um, Mm -hmm. Another way I could see a ranger being very useful in a a modern type setting is they could be like a rescue ranger. Okay, do you have that Chippendale song in your head right now? (laughs) <laughs> not the song. Dales, rescue rangers not the song but that was the first thing when you said rescue rangers that was the first thing that came to my head that wasn't intentional that just kind of slipped but yeah i mean <laughs> i could see a, a ranger being a part of like a, a wilderness rescue group where they go out and they you know they rescue lost hikers or campers now i think in a sci-fi setting a ranger could even could be even uh you know, more practical or or more in place because, you know, if you're going to explore these other planets, you want to have someone who's skilled in how to find water. Now, food is going to be tricky. I mean, if we go to some other distant planet, we don't really have any way to know, um, you know, what plants on that, you know, that planet are edible and which ones are poisonous. But... Right. You know, still having someone who knows how to survive in the wilderness would be very helpful in that type of campaign. I agree. I agree. Um, 
Yeah, and I guess I went the different way with the Ranger. I was thinking more of a, like a scout type character, somebody who, you know, goes ahead of you and and obviously, you know, in a modern setting it would be have a gun or something like that. So in the in the context of like a modern day setting, do you think that Rangers should still have those spell casting abilities, even if you are doing like a magic type setting, or do you think it would be better to like maybe take away the the magical and mystical aspects of the ranger and maybe give them a little bit more to focus on like combat and survival type skills. Yeah, I think it's got to go. I think magic's got to go because even in a modern setting where magic is a thing, too much magic, I don't think will hold up. Now, in, in just to be in all fairness here, I don't think rangers should have magic to begin with. I'm not a fan of ranger magic. Never have been. I can't really tell you why. It's just one of those things that I've never been a big fan of. You know, and a lot of the rangers I remember reading about in D&D fiction, I don't think I've ever really seen them uh, them use magic in any of those settings. Uh, I mean, the ones I think of mostly would be like Riverwind from Dragonlance, uh, Tristan Kendrick from Forgotten Realms, uh, there was a Brent Orc Slayer, I think, uh, was in another one of the Forgotten Realms books. Uh, Reno the Blade. So even Drist though... Ra- oh, go ahead. Don't don't forget Drist de Hurden, or however you say his last name. He was, a, he was a... Yeah. Actually... He was a ranger, wasn't he? Yeah, he was a ranger. I never really read any of the books that had Drist in them, so I'm okay. not familiar. He, does, he did occasionally use magic. But it was never powerful magic. And some of the stuff Rangers get after a while seems overpowered. I, I, I don't Not know. I, really. fan- I mean, because you look at second edition, okay, they can only go up to third level cleric spells, but only in plant and animal. Now, um, first edition was a little different where they got druid and wizard spells, but they only got up to second level. Uh, and I know that third edition onward, they kind of got their own you know, their own spell stuff. But I think uh, fourth edition, didn't they take away all Ranger magic? I don't know. I didn't play enough fourth to be honest uh, with you to, to, to answer that question. Okay. So, but in third edition, I think they could go up to fifth or sixth level spells. Yeah. They Rangers got way more spells to work with after second edition. Um, Cause yeah, second edition, they, like I said, plant and animal spells, which, can be useful, but generally nothing as, you know, grandiose as like Creeping Doom or anything like that, but... Right, right, right. Well, let's talk about the other warrior class, the Paladin. Now, Uh, I think this would be very challenging to do in a modern type setting, um, or any non-fantasy setting, because you it's look challenging at, to do in a fantasy setting sometimes. Yeah, because you have to consistently follow this more this strict moral code. But mm-hmm. I mean, you look at the you look at the uh, you know the template or the historical figures that this character is based on. You know, they're based on like King Arthur and you know the Knights of the Round Table. That's I think that's the major historical inspiration for the uh, paladin. And, you know, you got this idea of this, this knight constantly going on holy quests. Now, right. 
not saying it couldn't be done in a fantasy in a, in a in a historical setting like a modern setting but it would be tricky to implement now you say historical but really king arthur and these guys have never been proven to exist that is true um i do remember seeing this uh it was a documentary about king arthur and the knights of the round table um way way mm-hmm. back when and the i think they did find an inscription on in a ruin that mentioned a name arthuro which they thought maybe was somewhat of an inspiration for uh you know king arthur i mean it's certainly mm-hmm. possible that maybe there was this great warrior king that lived long ago that you know has been forgotten to the mists of time but you know maybe some of his stories did get passed on but yeah, I mean, I, I don't know how much historical evidence there is out there as to the existence of a, you know, a, king, a historical King Arthur. Right, right. And I, and I only bring that up for the reason of argument to the fact that paladins, in the way that they are shown in D&D and how they are supposed to live and everything, the thing that I always I always go back to the to the Knights Templar and the way they were supposed to be, but you know all all things historical really show that they probably weren't these upstanding, you know, um, um, vessels and and warriors of God. Okay. You know. Okay. So, and yeah, but I think the the main reason is just I mean you make a good point, but I think a lot of it is just. How many people do you know can consistently keep up a strict, lawful, good uh, moral code and and not deviate very much from it? Yeah, exactly. I mean, I consider myself a good person, but by the the rules and structures of D&D, I couldn't be a paladin. (laughs) I don't think I could be a paladin even if I had the ability scores for it. <laughs> so you only you only need an ability scores in first and second ed. Yeah. <laughs> so moving on, the bard. So mm-hmm. and I mean bards are one of those classes that have definitely changed a lot through the history of the editions. Do you remember yep. first edition bards? I didn't really play first edition. No. I yeah, because in a first edition, in order to become a bard. You had to, I think, start out as a fighter, progress so many levels as a fighter. Then you had to become a thief and progress so many levels as a thief. Then you had to become a druid for so many levels. And then, ta-da, I'm now a bard. So you're a first-level bard that had like, you know, 50, 60, 70 hit points. Yeah, bards bards in first edition were nuts. Um, they had some pretty cool magic instruments, though, that didn't really make it over to 2nd Edition. But anyways, so I mean, 2nd Edition, I did like how they simplified the Bard, where, you know, was more focusing on his entertainment skills, and again, being that jack-of-all-trades. So, right, being support, really, for the fighters and the clerics and the and the other... I mean, a Bard is really support guy you don't you don't make a entire group of bards because they're all gonna die really fast yeah. <laughs> um so, you know that's always the joke is what 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 good's a first level bard well firewood no i've <laughs> i think i've talked about this before and you know if you're not sure if it's if it's safe to go through that door 
You open the door, you throw the bard in, close the door, and if she starts to scream, you know it wasn't safe. Right, exactly what I'm saying. Okay, bards at low levels are, are kindling. But now when I think bard, the first thing when I was thinking about this, when I was looking over the notes for this, and I said, bard, I'm like, oh my God, I'm like, bard, Elvis Presley, yeah, um, Michael Jackson, these guys with huge charismas and huge abilities to influence people, because that's really all a bard does. Well, now, in D&D, they do it through magic, but it's just influencing. It's giving you a buffer to, you get plus one to your hits, or you get... Plus one to your AC because he's singing and he's and you're within the aura of this bard. You know, you talk about Elvis Presley. I think technically he'd be like a triple classed fighter monk bard because he was in the army. Yep. He's he was a, a legitimate black belt in karate. And that he I was didn't know. he was, yeah. And um yeah, the he studied under I think his name was Ed Parker. Um, one of the founders of American Kempo. So yeah, he was okay. he was a legitimate black belt, and okay, um, yeah, and of course he was a good singer and guitar player too. <laughs> right. So, I mean, what about the the way that I would always picture bards in a modern setting? I'm not sure how you would work in the thieving abilities, because for as awesome as Elvis Presley was, I don't see him as being able to pick locks. Yeah, okay, I can see that. Um, but that that's kind of my point, is he wouldn't have to. You know, he wouldn't have to go through all the work of picking a lock, because... He'd just be like, hey, pretty lady, I want to let me in. Ex- that's exactly it. I mean, as sad as that sounds, but, you know, he, he didn't have to. I don't know. He was the know. king. He was, didn't. I mean, yeah, he didn't have to do maybe that. I'm but, overthinking this. I but, tend to do that from time to time. I mean, I could see legend lore though still being very useful for a bard in a modern setting. And I mean, you look at some musicians. Uh, one group that always comes to mind is Iron Maiden. Um, I don't know. Have you ever listened to much Iron Maiden? Not a lot. I've heard some. Well. Because one of the things I like about Iron Maiden is when it comes to subject matter in their music, they are some of the most div- they have some of the most diverse subject matter in their music. They've done songs about you know science fiction movies. They've done uh, songs about historical events. Like I I know they've uh, like I don't know if you know or not, but Bruce Dickinson, the lead singer, uh, he's an airplane pilot and. You know, he's actually licensed to fly airplanes. And okay. I think he's a, a World War II buff, too, because, you know, they have some of their songs like Aces High and Where Eagles Dare, where there's this, uh, you know, this theme of airplanes. And they've also done songs about mythology, like Flight of Icarus, um, Power Slave, which draws on, um, you know, ancient Egyptian motifs. Uh, they did mm-hmm. a song about called Sun and Steel about the great samurai Miyamoto Musashi. Uh, they've, and even historical events like uh, Two Minutes to Midnight, that's based on a real historical thing. So I could see someone like Bruce Dickinson, um, though I think their bassist Steve Harris also writes a lot of their lyrics. I could see them as having that legend lore ability because, well, they just they obviously look into a lot of things, you know? <laughs> right, right, right. So, 
Yeah, just I think the tricky thing about making a modern bard is thinking of ways to incorporate the thieving abilities. But I could see magic being useful for a bard. Yeah. You know, because they could use, you know, they could uh, use illusion magic to create pyrotechnic effects. A lot safer and a lot cheaper, too. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So the last one we, well, there's two other classes we can cover. Uh the one that, let's go with the last one that I have on the list I gave you, the wizard. Okay. So, I mean, actually, I don't think the wizard would be too hard to incorporate if you are doing, like, a modern fantasy-type setting. Because you mentioned with uh, Dresden Files, you know, right. if you're using that as an influence for your campaign, uh, you know, you seems that, you know, there are people that are aware of magic and that it exists. Right. Yeah, I, yeah. I think the wizard would transfer actually pretty easily, to be honest with you. So, um, I think it would just be a matter of of somehow negotiating the wizard with some way that the magic isn't overpowered in a world of really a world of non magic. Okay. So here's a question for you, though. Okay. In most versions of D&D, wizards can't wear armor, and they have very limited weapons. So, what do you think of that restriction in a modern-day setting? Do you think there's anything wrong with allowing a, a wizard in modern day to learn how to use a handgun, or a shotgun, or a sword? I don't think there's anything wrong with them learning those things. I think the only restriction I would really stick with would be the the um, the lack of armor because there is something to be said for the fact that you know a wizard has to be able to cast spells and in doing so they have to be able to cast magic um, you know in a free flowing way. I don't know if you've ever seen a lot of like they you know magic is always cast with the movement of hands and that kind of stuff and I think it's it's important important that that's not lost in in a modern setting. Okay. Well, let's go off to another side topic here. Where are you in the school of thought as to why wizards can't wear armor? Do you think it's because the armor interferes with all the movements they have to do, or that you think armor just interferes with the arcane flow of energy? Yeah, I would have to go, I would have to say that it's probably arcane. Yeah, that, that's, that's the... That's the school of thought I've always belonged to, that if a wizard wears plate mail, it interferes with, you know, the, the flow of magical energies. So, Yeah, yeah, I, I think I would agree with that. Well, let's move on to the last class of, you know, the, a lot of the classic classes, the monk. So I think this could be fun to play and would make sense in a modern setting. Because if you think about it, you're probably more likely to run into someone who knows karate or jujitsu than you are to run into someone who knows how to properly use a two-handed sword or a battle axe. Right, but let me ask you this question about the monk. What are your chances of running into somebody? I mean, there's more to being a monk than just knowing karate or, you know, kung fu. A monk requires some sort of a, at least my understanding has always been that it requires some sort of a 
um, religious background almost. Well, in D&D, at least the versions I have seen, they never really focused on that part. Because I think monk, it's one of those things that, it's one of those words that can be used in different ways. Yeah, you can have a monk like, you know, usually we mentioned before Buddhist monks. Or even I believe there's there's Christian monks as well, you know, back in the days of, you know, where they would live in those abbeys or there's, you know, way out in the, you know, away from the city. Yep. So I guess the term monk, it's kind of uh, how you want to use it. But the core idea of basically someone who is really good at fighting with just his arms and his, you know, his arms and legs and hands and feet. Mm-hmm. Now, I, I guess the, the real question, though, is, okay, what about all the semi-mystical abilities that they get, especially if you're looking at someone in first edition? Wow, that's something I didn't actually really think about until just now. Um, yeah, because the, I mean, honestly, I do like how they did martial arts in second edition with the complete ninjas handbook, where it, you know, anyone could, well, the way it worked was you had a core style that you could learn. And it okay. might be something like karate or kung fu or jujitsu, um, sumo wrestling, etc. And okay. that gave you a you know certain core modifi- you know core statistics or not statistics. It gave you some you know core abilities. But then they right. had special techniques you could learn, and which ones you could learn depended on your martial art that you studied. So someone who was specializing in ninjutsu, they would learn different techniques than someone who studied Taekwondo. Just like someone okay. who studied Taekwondo would learn, you know, a different set of techniques than someone who practiced Kung Fu. Right. Okay. So, but the thing I liked about that is you could essentially have a monk-like character regardless of their class. So instead of being the old, you know, the like what they were in first edition where they had these semi-mystical abilities and... Uh, you know, they also had some thieving abilities as well. Okay. You could have a, a monk ranger or a monk wizard or a monk thief if you wanted to. Yeah, I'm not a, I, I never played monks a lot, so I'm, I'm kind of not sure, um, what the best, the best thought process on this is. So I, I'm going to go with what you said. Okay. <laughs> well, <laughs> What about some of the other classes? Because they did, of course, have cavaliers and barbarians in some of the editions. Um, any other? You mentioned warlocks, and of course, third edition had the sorcerers that they introduced. Are there any other classes from any of the editions that you think would be fun or challenging or maybe difficult to play in a modern setting? Um, you know, I talked a little bit about the cavalier before we started. Um, I think that could be both fun and challenging, to be honest with you. Okay. So if you're using a cavalier as basically someone who focuses on mounted combat, okay, what's the closest we have to that? Are they going to, you know... Motorcycle. Yeah. Because <laughs> you can learn how to fight from horseback. It's just not going to do much in today's setting. <laughs> right. But I think if you make that into a motorcycle... You know, but then does the Cavalier kind of become like, I don't know, like uh, like a Hell's Angel? Yeah, because you have to remember, with, like with Cavaliers, they're like uh, they have a certain code of chivalry that they're supposed to follow. 
Correct. So yeah, yeah. It, it would be interesting. I think it would be challenging. I, I think it might be fun, but I could be wrong on that. Yeah. I mean, I could see one class from fourth edition that I never got to play, but I thought sounded interesting was the warlord okay. where they're more or less a fighter, but they specialize in tactics. So right. I think that would be kind of fun to play in a, in a, in a modern type setting where you've got this, you know, I could see a warlord as being like a, you know, a military career person who, you know, maybe they got out of the army, but they still know how to command small groups of people to fight as an effective team. Right. No, yeah, I could, I could see that being fun. So, um, yeah, I, yeah. Okay. Well, uh, we're getting near the end here. So, uh, one last thing to talk about and let's, we've done idea theft before where we talked about, a movie or a TV series or a book, just maybe something that you can use as inspiration for a campaign. Right. Can you think of like a movie or a TV show or some other non-fantasy fiction that you could use as inspiration for doing a, a non-fantasy campaign using the D&D rule set? I mean, one thing that got me thinking about this, Robotech, because... I my last episode I did I talked about you know Robotech how it was a cartoon series that I enjoyed as a child and you know I recently got done rewatching it and I more or less enjoyed it as an adult as well but I think the third season the new Robotech the new generation I think that has some interesting ways you could work into a campaign now, if we're looking okay. at the different characters, the main ones, well, first, my favorite character from that series was Rand. He would essentially be a ranger. You know, he was this survivalist, this country boy who was, you know, really, he was good at his survival and wilderness skills. Okay. Um, the main character that was kind of this leader of the group, Scott Bernard, Honestly, if you're using second edition, I could see him being very similar to a paladin. He had this very strict, unwavering devotion to his cause, which was trying to defeat the Invid to liberate the Earth. Uh, one of the other interesting characters in that game, in that series, was was um his name was Lancer, but he also he was a cross-dressing singer that had this alter ego yellow dancer. So even okay. though he was tough and he could handle himself in a fight, I could see him as being the group's bard because not only could, cause he could sing, but he, there were a few times where he would talk the group's way out of tight situations. Okay. Um, two of the other characters, Rook and Lunk, I could see them as fighters, but Lunk would actually more more of a tech specialist because he's this guy that looks kind of like this, uh, you know, this big dumb oaf, but he's actually a very skilled mechanic. All right. Uh, the final member of the group, Annie, who's this thirteen-year-old girl that's obsessed with marriage. Not sure where I would see her as a character class, but I would see her more or less like a thief because she does do a bit of sneaking around and she doesn't really get involved directly in combat. But Okay. Um, now, the plot behind the third season 
is there's this alien race called the Invid, and they've taken over most of the Earth. There's a few areas where there's pockets of resistance, but uh, the main character, Scott Bernard, him and his unit are getting back from Mars, and they're attacked by the Invid, and, you know, most of the you know, most of the uh, members of his unit are, are killed, but he manages to survive okay. and he's trying to rally freedom fighters to destroy the Invid. Now, one of the things that could be fun about this is, first of all, you do have a general, you do have a very specific goal. They're trying to get to this base the Invid have set up called Reflex Point. But some of the people they encounter in like the various towns and cities they're not sympathetic to these freedom fighters because the Invid are, they'll pretty much, they've enslaved humanity, but they'll leave you alone as long as you don't initiate any violence. So there's a few times during the series where people are betraying the heroes to the Invid. So it it would be challenging because you're you're not sure who you can trust, but not only that, they were always in short supply of this fuel called protoculture that was used to power their, you know, their mechs and their equipment. So I just thought after watching that, you know, that would actually be kind of a fun base for a D&D campaign. Yeah, actually, it does sound like it could be fun. Yeah, and um, it's, still on, uh, it's still on Netflix if you want to go check it out. Um, I mean, it's listed as just one season of like 80-some episodes, um, mm-hmm. But if uh, I forgot which se- which uh, I forgot which episode the third season started at, but check it out if you have a chance. Yeah, I might do that. Um, it's time. Time is the thing that always kills me. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think I'm gonna. I think I'm gonna go back to this whole Harry Dresden idea. Okay. Because I think that would be. A fun thing to, to, or am I misinterpreting the question here? You're talking about bringing D&D into the modern times, correct? Yeah, or just, and like, you know, that's actually a good example, the Dresden Files. How would you use that as a basis for a D&D campaign? And maybe if you know some of the characters from Dresden Files, what type of a D&D class would they be? Well, I mean, obviously Harry would be a wizard. Harry, you're a wizard. <laughs> um. And and there is a he's got a girlfriend and I can't remember her name right now but she is actually a half breed she was human the vampires tried to turn her but he stopped them so she's I don't know what she would be as a uh, character probably some sort of a you know you could almost use the berserker class because in certain situations she can't control herself okay. and her her bloodlust takes over and she becomes stronger and you know, tries to to uh, eat you, for lack of a better word. Um, there's Bob. Bob is a spirit. I don't. Bob wouldn't really be a class. He's a spirit in a skull. Um, but Bob is a demon. So I don't know. I, I don't know if he can really class a demon. Um, but in you got to remember in the Dresden Files, demons are both good and evil. They are. They have both sides, just like humans. So Bob is a good demon. Um, Bob the Good Demon. There's a name that's going to strike fear into the heart of evildoers everywhere. I am Bob the Good Demon. Are you a good demon or a bad demon? 
Um, but other than that, the main characters um, change book to book. Uh, so you'll have like there was there the one book I just uh, got done listening to because I don't read that much anymore because I don't have time. So while I'm in the car, I stick a book in the CD player and I go. Um, but there was the there was the head vampire in this enclave in South America um, that had come to Chicago to kill Dresden because Dresden killed some other vampires and started the war between the wizards and the red sect. So anyway, he comes to Chicago with some of his, his lackeys. And um, so he would be more of a, he, he was like a warrior prince. Like he was a prince of the vampires, but he was this warrior, this fighter. So he'd be a fighter kind of thing. But I could, I could definitely see building something around the idea of, you know, there's this one guy who's kind of pivotal to this war and that guy is the guy you have to keep safe or somebody plays that guy and the rest of the party has to keep that guy safe kind of thing. So I, I think that's probably the way I would go with something like that. What, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I think, I think you got a good example there. Like I said, I've heard of Dresden files. I'm not actually familiar with the, um, you know, the actual series or the characters, but right. yeah, it's a good example of like an urban fantasy type game where it does take fantasy elements and puts them in a modern setting. So, yeah, from right. what you described, it sounds like that would actually fit quite well with uh, a D&D type campaign. Wow, I'm just winning tonight. You are awesome. I am feeling like uh, uh, Charlie Sheen. <laughs> You're winning. You're awesome sauce. I am awesome sauce. <laughs> Well, I think we've had enough awesome sauce for one day, or at least I never hope. too much awesome sauce. Yes, there never is no too such, much. There is no such <laughs> thing as too much awesome sauce, right? That's right. So, uh, before we sign off for today, Chad, uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about some of the other podcasts you do on the network? Well, let's see. I do. Uh, whose podcast is it anyway? It's your I podcast, do. isn't it? Well. That is the idea, but it doesn't always work out that way. People should come check it out because sometimes the guest takes over what's going on. Uh, so there's there's that one. Um, there is also one I do called Musically Challenged, which is a musical uh, podcast that we do uh, weekly. Um, and on that one, I do it with my co-host, Lou Schwalbach. And then I also do a little monthly one uh, where – Myself and my co-host, Scott Ahern, we get together and we talk about something um, and we do it from a more realistic standpoint. We give you actual information, not just how we feel about something or what we think about something. Um, it's more of an educational podcast, and that's called Want to Hear Something Interesting. So all three of those um, you can find at uh, on Facebook at POI Network. Um, or you can email me, um, depending on the podcast, but, uh, if you check them out on this, uh, this channel, you can find the email at the end of each, uh, episode and in the write-ups. So, um, but yeah, you know, and you can find our POI network as well at Facebook. You can, and you might want to, yeah, go back in, uh, not too long ago for his, uh, for Chad's Whose Podcast Is It Anyway, uh, him and one of his guests, and I apologize, I forgot the guy's name, you had your topic, D&D &D is a Lie. So, Oh, uh, yes, with uh, with my buddy Carl. 
So that was an interesting episode. So uh, go check that one out. And, you know, hey, I've been known to pop up and on his show from time to time as well. This is true. This is very, very true. I'm just like student loan debt. You can't get rid of me. And would I want to? Well, you, I'm sure you want to get rid of student loan debt. But yeah, would you really want to get rid of me? You know... Don't answer <laughs> that. Anyways. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, thanks uh, again for joining us today. And have a good evening or morning or afternoon. Whatever it is, wherever you are, and happy gaming. You have been listening to a program from the Point of Insanity Network. Visit us at poigamestudio.podbean.com for more shows. Follow us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at POIGamestudio.com. 